0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Today we're going to look at verse 2. We're going to spend uh, quite a bit of time at the beginning of Ephesians 4, as that's the foundation for everything else that uh, comes. This is the transition point where we look at what Christ has done for us, now transitioning to how we ought to walk. In light of that, Ephesians chapter 4, I'll begin in verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, Father, these virtues you have called us to are unattainable apart from the new birth, apart from the Spirit working this eternal life in our hearts to where there's actual change So, Father, I pray that you would help us. Lord, our desire is to live lives worthy of our calling. And so, Father, we ask that uh, you would speak to us through your word. In Christ's name, amen. How fallen you are from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. This is the prophet Isaiah in chapter 14, speaking of the king of Babylon in his pride, who is an anti-type of Satan himself. Did you hear all the I wills? I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. What do we call that? We call that pride. The greatest example of pride is in Satan himself. John, speaking of Satan's fall in Revelation 9, beginning in verse 1, says it this way. He says, the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. And then in verse 10, he says, This this, this is speaking of Satan opening up the pit of hell and releasing demons that are like scorpions that harm the people on earth. verse 10 it says they have tails and and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And they have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, his name is, In Hebrew, is Abaddon. And in Greek, he is called Apollyon. The king of these demons is called the destroyer. And what Satan is doing at this time is he's destroying his own children, his own people. You would think The ones who were loyal to him, he would be loyal to them. And yet he torments them. That's what he does. He came to kill, steal, and destroy. And that's what pride does to any relationships. In fact, in Luke 10... When the disciples are trampling down serpents and scorpions, here's what we read. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. I've given you that power, he says. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see how subtle pride is, that even as the disciples are doing what Christ gave them power to do, which is to cast out demons and trample on serpents and scorpions, even as they're doing that, they are infiltrated with the same pride Satan had. You see, Satan wanted to be on top with his power. And now the disciples got above him. And that's what they're rejoicing in. And he says, don't rejoice in that. Don't rejoice that now the demons are subject to you. For then they would fall to the very same poison that Satan fell for. But he says, rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you've been shown grace. But you see, when we rejoice in that, our position comes down. We're we're saved by grace. As you look at Ephesians 4, I just want you to see how this book lays out. Since we're going to go slower, I don't want us to get lost in this. All right? Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16, if you're going to say, what is he basically talking about? He's talking about the unity of this new man, this new people created in Christ Jesus, Jew and Gentile reconciled together, given new life, born again. He's speaking of that this ought a people ought to walk unified. And then from verse 17 all the way to chapter 5, verse 21, he talks about how this people ought to be a pure people. So the new society created in Christ Jesus ought to be unified and they ought to be holy. And the way Paul calls that is, walking in a manner worthy of your calling, all right? Unity and purity. And then as we zoom in on those first 16 verses, in verse 2, that's what we're going to look at today, he shows us that this unity depends on the virtue of love and that love has other virtues uh, attached to it. So that's what we're going to look at today. And then the next section, verses 3 through 6, shows us that our unity is informed by the unity of God himself. And then verses 7 to 12 shows us that our unity is actually brought together by a a a diverse giftedness by the Spirit of God to the people of God. God gifts us differently to bring about unity. And ultimately, if there's going to be unity in this new people, there needs to be maturity. So we'll look at how we're built up to be mature uh, people, able to be unified. And so as we look at Verse 2, let's remember it's flowing out of verse 1 where Paul urges, the word is begs them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And as we've seen so clearly, that calling is a high calling beyond what we can imagine. Every blessing in the heavenly places are yours in Christ Jesus Christ is above every power. His throne is the highest throne. And we have been seated with him in the heavenly places, adopted as sons, given the inheritance of Christ. Our calling is a high calling. And now he says, walk in a manner worthy of that. And what we might think he's going to say is, if that's who you are, you better strut your stuff. If you're seated on the throne with Christ above every rule and authority, and you're to walk in a manner worthy of that, someone might think, well, boy, we ought to be pretty proud people. But what if we, what, what were we shown in these first three chapters? We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We were saved by the mercy and grace and kindness of God, not by our works. Our high standing, we didn't get there because we were good. We got there because of grace. And so as he tells us to walk in this new way, we need to realize that this new people will walk in, diametrically opposed to the ways of the world. See, to walk in the Spirit is exactly opposite of walking in the flesh. Galatians 5.16, Paul puts it this way, I say, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh... "...are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do." They're polar opposites. So what Paul is calling them to is to walk exactly opposite of what you were used to walking like, Exactly opposite of those who are walking in the flesh. In Romans 8.5, he, he makes the point this way. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. See, to walk with the Spirit is to set your minds on the Spirit's words, and the Spirit's words are found in the gospel of Christ, in the Scripture. And then he says, in Romans 8, 6, he says, For the mind set on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. And so, as Paul calls us to walk in a manner worthy, we walk by the power of the Spirit. We're to walk, in verse 2 it says, of of Ephesians 4, to walk with all humility. All right. To walk with all humility. The charge of this message is, is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling is to walk in love. If we don't walk in love, we will never walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And in order to walk in love, you need to walk in all humility. See, this is building up to love. The last virtue we'll look at is love. But he begins with all humility. He doesn't say some humility, but all humility. This word means lowliness of mind or humble attitude. It's your thoughts about yourself. It's a lowliness of mind. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling These things are true for you in Christ in a way that's worthy of that, if it was all by grace, is to be lowly-minded of yourself. In fact, when Paul penned this, uh, there wasn't a Greek word that he could even point to. He had to make up a compound word, lowly-mindedness, because in that culture... Never was lowly-mindedness held up as a virtue. Never. That was like a slave that had no power and no worth, and that was to be despised. So what Paul is saying here, what Christ has already laid out, is something that is so diametrically opposed to anything the world has never known that they didn't even have a word for humility. The idea is, is, is what he says in Romans 12.3. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but with sober judgment. See, that's what lowly-mindedness is. Not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. John Stott says, the humble mind, which was in Christ, led him to empty himself and become a servant. Now humility, Stott says, is essential to unity. Pride lurks behind all discord, while the greatest single secret of unity is humility. And so one of the things we're going to have to try to wrap our minds around is the one who was God himself was the most lowly-minded human being that has ever walked the face of the earth. Humility is the are The chief of all virtues, we know this, right, is what? Love. Love is always crowns the top of the virtues. But the foundation of every virtue, every character trait that God calls for comes out of the soil of humility. You can't have one virtue that does not come out of the soil of humility any virtue that does not first grow out of humility is actually a counterfeit virtue that is in that is in rebellion to christ's throne the one who emptied himself i read an article by a guy named dunnington on humility and he quotes saint augustine here's what Here's what he says, he says, perhaps St. Augustine was not exaggerating when he wrote that almost the whole Christian teaching is humility. Now, he's not talking about the doctrine of Christ or salvation. He's talking about as you live now, as you walk in your newness of life, and you're going to describe it as something. He said, it's a Almost the whole of Christian teaching is humility. Elsewhere, in a letter responding to a young student named Dioscorus, Augustine wrote, if you were to ask me, however often you might repeat the question, what are the instructions of Christian religion, I would be disposed to answer always and only humility. What does God want out of our redeemed St. Thomas Aquinas, these are pretty high-hitting theologians of the past, explains why humility is preeminent. He says, humility removes pride, whereby a man refuses to submit himself to the truth of faith. So he's saying, the thing that will keep you from exercising faith is pride from following what God says is pride. Thomas thinks that although humility is not the most important virtue, that honor belongs to love, it is the beginning of Christian virtue. Because without humility, we cannot be in a position of openness to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And since supernatural virtues are bestowed by the Holy Spirit, without humility, we cannot live live lives of Christian holiness. See, if we're going to have spiritual life in us, then there needs to be a submission to the Spirit's work in our life, and that takes humility. John Calvin claimed there is no access to salvation unless all pride is laid aside in true humility embraced. Now, I had to think about that one. I thought, is that true? Is there really no access to salvation apart from humility? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, see there's certain types of spirituality or faith that actually raises the pride of man it's something i've said before it might sound controversial but i think it's true to be a good member of the roman catholic church is to be raised up in virtue and and and, and held up as A a godly, great man. But as you follow what the New Testament teaches, that the person who comes to faith in Christ must humble himself so much so that he must enter into baptismal waters, confessing to be a sinner. Unworthy. This is humbling. This is unimpressive. It's saying, I have nothing, lest I be immersed into Christ alone. I don't need Christ's help and then add my virtues in. I have nothing. I need to be immersed into Him. To be saved is to recognize yourself for who and what you really are. Totally desperate in need of Christ. Christ. The writer of this article said, humility is the gateway to a life of holiness. In fact, Jesus shocked his culture. They couldn't wrap their minds around it when he grabbed a little child. One, you see, they didn't treat children like we You know, children run households in America. You just bow down and ask your child what you want and follow them and that's that you're considered a good parent in our culture. But in that culture, a child had no power, had no value. It was the lowest. You had slaves and then you had children. And Jesus grabs the child. He says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, You need to be humbled like this child that without the care, without someone caring for him, will just die, totally a beggar, needy, unable to produce. And Jesus says, if you want to enter heaven, you need to become like this child, this We just gotta wrap our minds around how opposite this is of anything the world had ever heard. And so when, as Scott read Philippians 2, when he says, "If if there's any encouragement in Christ, is there? Reading the first three chapters, we have to say, yeah, in spades, there's encouragement in Christ. If there's any comfort from love, Any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, that's unity, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves." Let each of you not look to his own interest but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now just wrap your minds around it. Try. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He's God. He could have come down in all glory, but he was born in a stable, to a peasant family. He could have accrued all sorts of land and a castle and a kingdom, but the only thing you could point to, the only property he owned, seemed to be the clothes on his back. And yet even in his death, there's no place to bury him. He, need, he, need, he needs to be buried in a rich man's tomb It's mind blowing the incarnation, the humiliation for Christ to become like us. He says, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, which means it was the Father's will for him to be humble like this, even though he is the Son of God. See, the question we're asking in Ephesians is how ought we to walk in light of what God has done for us? Well, Christ is God. He does deserve all worship in all glory, and yet he comes down to be a servant, not to be served. He becomes obedient to the point of death, meaning that's what God loves. That's what the Father cherishes. It's the opposite of Satan. It's pride. And that's why we read, That being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That's what God loves. Do you realize God is never, you can't find one scripture where God turns away a humble heart. A lowly minded person. Can't find one text. You find texts like this: "Clothe yourselves, all you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." Psalm one thirty eight six. For the Lord, uh, for the Lord, or for through the Lord. I'm sorry. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar or proverbs 33:4 towards the scorners he is scornful but to the humble he gives favor or matthew 23:12 whoever exalts himself will be humbled whoever humbles himself will be exalted or luke 1:52 he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate james 4:6 god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble You and I have never complained or grumbled with a humble heart. Okay, before I go through this list, you might get subtly trapped in the trap of pride as you feel sorry for yourself, as you don't do so hot on this list. Now remember, in light of the first three chapters of the grace of Christ... He calls us to walk in a manner worthy. So you can't feel sorry for yourself at the end of this. You can't. You need to be excited that as you submit to the Spirit, God can change you. All right? So there's my warning ahead of time. Now let's just go through this list and not throw a pity party at the end of it. You've never complained or grumbled with a humble heart. Which means we walk in the flesh all the time, don't we? We walk in the flesh, it leads to death. We walk with the spirit, eternal life. Spiritual life flows out of us. Christ-like life flows out of us. You have never gossiped with a humble heart. Ever. Ever. You've never served or looked out for yourself or or you've never looked out for yourself first with a humble heart. You've never said, today's a me day. Today I'm looking out for me. I give and I give and I give and I give and now, I mean this is secular counsel, right? Man, you're just giving too much. You're just giving your life away. You know, Jesus was wrong. It's not more blessed to give than receive. You need to take. You need to make your life all about you. You need to feel great about yourself as you look in the mirror, and then joy is going to pour in. Well, that's not true. You've never held a grudge or have been impatient or unforgiving with a humble heart. never happened. You've never been self-indulgent with food, with a humble heart. You've never been self-indulgent with sex, with a humble heart. You've never been self-indulgent with drugs or alcohol, with a humble heart. You see, we're at the center of all those passions. All that is about us You've never been self-indulgent in hobbies with a humble heart. Whenever we seek self first, we're the only ones benefiting. We know that pride is ruling our hearts. Have you ever made presumptuous plans about your life? or your business. You've never done that with a humble heart either. Listen to James 4.13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say if the Lord wills, will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. All that to show us the call to walk in all humility is a walk that is impossible apart from the Spirit of God at work within our hearts. And to walk with the Spirit of God is to have Christ Jesus, the most humble man that ever lived, who was a perfect man, that died in your place on the cross, bearing the wrath you deserved, you being given the righteousness and the reward he deserves in your place. It's only when the gospel, when Christ is in our vision, that the fuel, For living in, out of humility, is there. And so he tells us to walk in all humility and in gentleness. Now, all humility and gentleness. These are like a couple that you can't separate from each other. If humility is the attitude of the mind... Uh, gentleness, this word can also be translated meekness, is kind of the outflow of that way of thinking. All right? John Stott says, meekness is not a synonym for weakness. On the contrary, it is the gentleness of the strong. So meekness is the gentleness of the strong whose strength is under control. If you're going to understand gentleness, it is strength under control. It is the quality of a strong personality who is nevertheless a master of himself and the servant of others. Meekness is the absence of the disposition to assert personal rights, either in the presence of God or men. You see, all of our grumbling comes when... When I elevate what I deserve, what my rights are, how wrong it is that someone treated me this way, or how wrong it is I'm suffering in this way, it's it's only as we think like that do we become grumblers or attackers. This isn't right that you treat me this way. Meekness... And humility go together. Then, uh, true humility doesn't think of one so- oneself more highly than it ought. It's always totally aware of his own sin and unworthiness. And when that's true, to be wronged by another will not bring about sh- the shock of offense that strikes back. You know, I would consider myself in my flesh a pretty critical person. It becomes really natural for me to sit back and judge other people. And, and, and one of the most helpful things that God used in my life is in biblical counseling training uh, that started in seminary, which is basically the word of God shining light in on my heart, helping me see what I couldn't see in and of myself. As I saw all this pride and how often I'm feeling within. All of a sudden, it it became not very fun anymore to be critical of other people. You know, it it, it is kind of fun with a self-righteous group to talk about how bad these leaders are here and how bad those people are and how bad this church is or how bad. It It can feel, you know, gossip is like a tasty morsel. But when the light of God is shining in on your own heart, and all of a sudden, you're being exposed. Now, all of a sudden, it's not quite so fun to play that game. And, and, and so meekness, this, this ability, John Piper says meekness is like a punching bag. The point of a punching bag is it absorbs the punch, but it doesn't punch back. It takes, it takes hits without a, a response that is uncontrolled. And the only way a person can start to become that way is when you see how God has been this way with you. You see how patient God has been with you. What if God just struck back every time we sin? Just wham, wham. Well, we we would never get anywhere without getting blasted by him. So consider the wrongs that are committed against you. Uh, You know, there's nothing wrong with calling sin, sin. The Bible doesn't say pretend like no one's sinning against you. Or the Bible never says pretend like no one's abusing you even if you're being abused. No, the Bible says deal with sin, call it what it is, handle it biblically. But biblically is to recognize that even your abuse and even your suffering is in the realm of of Christ who has died for you, has guaranteed your inheritance for you, will never leave you or forsake you, lives inside you, has given you the body of Christ. And so as the world teaches those who've been sinned against to throw a pity party or teaches them how to gain power by being the victim, we can never do that as believers you have to forget the narrative of what reality is you see when people sin against us it's sin and it's wrong but the, it's a sinner against a sinner all the while we've been sinning against our creator we've been sinning against god god sends his own son he he humbles himself becomes obedient to the point of death dies on the cross for us, so that we can have meekness even in our suffering, even when people wrong us. So, meekness or gentleness it can never be separated from humility. Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This is all in the context of Christ came to not bring peace, but bring a sword. So let's not pull this out of its context But we just have to admit, as you look at the person of Christ, he did not reactively respond to insults, but rather he served in response to those who wronged him. So to walk in love is not only to walk in all humility and to walk in gentleness, but it's to be patient with one another. To walk, with all, uh, or to walk in patience, um, there needs to be a self-awareness of your own sin. That's what we've already talked about. We can be patient with others if we see how patient God is with us. But also, patience has to do with trusting the sovereignty of God over the difficult people in our lives. You see, you either believe that God is sovereign over your life, which means every person at work, every person in your family, every person in your church, or you believe he's not. Or you can believe he's sovereign over it and he's not good. He's not working for your good, but that would go against Romans 8, 28. All things are working together for my good. That's true. He will never leave me or forsake me. That's true. My salvation is secure. That's true. He's mediating for me right now. That's true. He's interceding for me right now. That's true. All those realities ought to bring about walking in with with patience, And then bearing with one another in love. To walk in love is to bear with one another in love. This obviously is a couple coupled with patience. To bear with one another, the word bear is endure. (laughs) To endure one another in love. You see, when you look at a church and you say, is it unified? Or when you look at a Christian school and you say, is it unified? or you look at a business and you say, is it unified? One of the tests is, is, do people have endurance with difficult people? Do they bear with one another and then give them good rather than strike at them, rather, rather than abuse them? Because that's what the flesh does. The flesh strikes back Colossians 3.12 Paul says put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness and patience bearing with one another and if anyone has a plane against another forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you must forgive and above all these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony You see how when these virtues are there, humility, meekness or gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, what does it mean in love? That's agape, which means loving someone else at the sacrifice of yourself. So someone reviles you and you bless them. That that would be loving this is opposite of what the world is seeing and yet this is what we're called to the virtues we're called to as christians here's how peter says in first peter 3 8 finally all of you have unity of mind sympathy brotherly love a tender heart and a humble mind do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling but on the contrary bless For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. To this you were called. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. What's my calling? To be reviled and then to bless in return. All right? So I got to the end of this sermon, and I started to throw a pity party for myself. I am so bad. I told Laura last night, you are married to a prideful man. But even there, if I start feeling sorry for myself, what have I done? I'm prideful. Because now it's about me. The focus is off the Savior that redeemed me. I have everything I need to live the life God has called me me to live yes it's hard yes it's a battle yes paul called it a fight of faith but what a calling he has given us and oh how it'll take the power of the spirit for us to have true unity to have biblical unity